This podcast of Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by BASF. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture here at Midweek. Thank you for joining us and for letting us be part of your day. Here's what we're going to talk about on today's program. Colin Woodall with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association will join us to talk about the the vote yesterday on the Green New Deal went as expected. We'll get his thoughts on that and some other issues as well. We're going to talk U.S. Grain Exports with Tom Slate, President and CEO of the U.S. Grains Council. And we're going to talk uh, with the President and COO of Sustainable Environmental Consultants. We're going to talk about sustainability on the farm, measuring it, uh, how valuable is it, uh, what uh, you know, what benefits can you get from it. We'll talk about all those issues a little bit later on. Hopefully I have some uh, good tips for you on that on today's program. But we're going to start things off with the news. Todd Neely, DTN reporter, is with us. Todd, thanks for joining us. Uh, you have been uh, watching the flooding situation uh, up close, right? I mean, they're in Nebraska. It's all around you. Yeah, you know, it's hard to avoid. And uh, it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, we're starting to see, you know, floodwaters recede, at least in this part of Nebraska, the northeast part of Nebraska, too. Um, and yet, uh, you know, we see a lot of struggle going on. Um, feedlots are having trouble finding DDGs. Uh, you know, there's a lot of transportation issues going on in agriculture right now. There's uh, We're hearing stories left and right about people having to go uh, take long detours to, to make deliveries or to, or to you know, to find feed. And, I mean, there's just a number of things that are going on, and I think that's kind of the story after the story. And then and then you look up north with uh, all the snow melt yet to come, and, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a long spring the way things are shaping up right now. Are you starting to see some roads reopen and some uh, rail lines reopen? Yeah, you know, there's some of that. Um, I think uh, when it comes to ethanol plants, you know, there's still some rail issues. Um, we're hearing even as of yesterday that an ADM plant in Columbus, Nebraska, um, they still have a rail loop that's underwater. Um, and so they've they've been, you know, they're, they're still operating, but it's, it's kind of at a slower pace. Um, also, you know, we're seeing little bits and pieces of, uh, you know, roads roads here and there starting to open back up in some places. Uh, you know, we had a rail line that goes from Fremont west to, to Grand Island uh, that opened up on Monday evening. And so, you know, there's little bits of things happening, but, um, you know, there's so much out there, and I think we're still kind of waiting to see what other bits of damage uh, maybe haven't been identified yet either. You know, some of these areas start to start to see the waters go away, uh, I think we'll probably learn more about it, additional damage. But as you said, also bracing for more water coming. Yeah, uh, you know, and you look up you look up to the north, uh, we're, we've seen a, an increase in the amount of water that the Corps of Engineers is releasing at Gavin's Point in South Dakota. Uh, it's not a dramatic increase, but it's an increase nonetheless. And, you know, we've been seeing, we've seen stories, too, up in South Dakota, of uh, different dams and different uh, parts of the water system up there starting to give in a little bit. You know, there's there is areas up there that are beginning to flood, and all that all that moisture and water is going to come down our way at some point. Um, 
so it's going to be it's going to be a real struggle for a while. You know, we still see a lot of standing water across the across the border into Iowa uh, with the Missouri River flooding, um, and so that's another part of the story we'll be tracking here along the way too. Of course, here we are about to wrap up March. Farmers would normally be thinking about getting to the fields for several. It right. sounds like it's going to be a long ways off. Yeah, I think so. You know, and, and Mike, even even as the water goes away, uh, there's there's going to be a lot of sand issues and different things, you know, debris from the flooding in fields. That uh, it's going to render many areas uh, pretty difficult to even try to get a crop in. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's quite a hit. I I think uh, we're gonna we're gonna learn more obviously as, as the days go along. But I think. Uh, when you look down the road, this is going to be one of the larger disasters in the country this year, and uh, it's going to hit Nebraska pretty hard. You know, we rely very heavily on agriculture as an economy, and uh, um, it's it's quite a it's quite a sight to see at this point. You mentioned uh, the challenge of moving. You know, the ethanol plants can't get the uh, product out, whether it's ethanol or DDGs. Yeah. What do you What are you hearing from some of the feedlots there in Nebraska? Uh, well, most mostly so far, it's been uh, you know them finding alternative routes. Um, a lot of these routes though are, are quite a ways out of the way, and so uh, you know you're looking at costs added to transportation. I mean, we had we have one uh, one feedlot near Wisner, Nebraska, uh, that they're they're seeing an added $500 a day just to go 22 miles around to another uh, to get feed. Uh, to some of their locations, and so that that's going to add up. Um, you know, it, it's really it really comes down to the individual location. Um, you know, some some feedlots are are seeing roadways into their into their facilities that uh, they're able to maybe fix on their own. Um, and and you know, we talked to one feedlot this week that hopes to have one particular important road that they use uh, back up and running up this week, and so. Um, you know, I don't think people are going to sit around and wait, you know, for, for the federal government or anyone else to come help. I think people are, you know, going neighbor to neighbor and, and trying to do what they can do at the moment. What are you hearing about well contamination, things like that? Uh, yeah, you know, it is an issue. Um, during a roundtable this week with the governor, uh, there was some discussion about uh, how there's going to be some uh, some testing available to people who have had their wells flooded. Uh, we don't know how many of those wells there are at this point, honestly. But any anything that was underwater uh, is probably going to need to be tested, you know, for for all the regular contaminants that you would be concerned about. Um, but really, it's kind of it's it's going to be interesting because I think as we go forward, like I said, I think we're going to see more and more, uh, you know, more numbers put to the damage, and and uh, it's going to be I think it's going to be quite a bit worse than what people even suspected at this point. I was going to say, usually in those situations, the numbers get yeah. higher, not lower, right? Absolutely. So uh, on some other issues, I know that you're also looking at some of the other issues going on and kind of connected with, with water, but the waters of the U.S., right. uh, uh, the comment period, uh, what are you hearing about the, the number of comments coming in on that proposed new rule? Yeah, well, at least on the on the website, there's a regulations.gov where, where anyone can go to post a comment. Um, we're, we've already seen over 59,000 comments uh, at least submitted there. Uh, I think they've posted over 2,000. But uh, up there, EPA has put a number of documents that they've received along the way, too. Uh, this period, it, it goes to the 29th of April. 
And so there's still, I, I'm sorry, the 15th of April, so we still have a couple of weeks left. Um, but I suspect that EPA itself, you know, they get a number of things through the mail as well. And so when this all when this all is said and done, we're probably looking at comments over a million. And, uh, yeah, you know, that's another that's another thing. We've, we've still got some court cases out there that uh, are attempting to kill the 2015 rule. So we'll see where that goes. All right, Todd, thank you for the update. Good to talk with you. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Take care. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Up next, Colin Whittall, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Stay with us on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Soybean growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee so you can have true peace of mind. And you can tap into our expanded Grow Smart Rewards program and get cash back. Go all in today at IngeniaHerbicide.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And joining us now is Colin Woodall, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Colin, thanks for joining us. Uh, What are you hearing from cattlemen, from your members in the the states with the flooding in the Midwest? You know, a lot of losses, as we have uh, talked about and, and you've been talking about on your show as well, uh, people just trying to sort through and, and get a, a true accounting of the number of cattle that have been lost. Uh, that's one of the things that we're just trying to do is be able to uh, identify how many cattle have lost. You know, a lot of them washed down river, and to be able to get that reported to USDA so we can make sure that uh, the programs are, are there to to help these producers get through this tough time. And then also just trying to make sure that folks are aware of the individual states that have set up relief funds like the Nebraska cattlemen have. Congress working on a disaster aid package. Uh, what are you hearing there? How much uh, progress have they made on that? You know, they are making some progress, and the good news is that uh, we have been told that they will include some additional funds for the flooding. Uh, that is great news. We were concerned that maybe this was a little bit too far down the road looking at previous disasters, that they may not uh, actually be able to uh, to cover the uh, Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri, and uh, the other states' issues uh, in this package, but that's not going to be the case. They are going to get it done. Unfortunately, the holdup right now has to do with a little fight between the Democrats and the Republicans on the Senate side in terms of uh, Puerto Rico hurricane relief. So if they can get over that, hopefully they can get this passed and have some additional monies available to producers there in the Midwest who are trying to recover. Well, something that did not pass, as expected it did not pass, was the uh, vote on the uh, Green New Deal. What did you think of that uh, uh, that vote yesterday and how that all came down? Well, you know what? It's kind of the best and worst of Washington, D.C., and the way that whole thing went down. Uh, I, I think when you sit back and, and look at what transpired, Senator Cornyn from Texas probably said it the best when he was on the floor speaking and said that any senator would be thrilled if the majority leader came to them and said, hey, I'm going to give you a vote on your resolution. But then those who sponsored the resolution decided that that wasn't good enough, and uh, they claimed that the vote was going to be just a sham action on behalf of Republicans to make them look bad. 
So all of those who were supporting it and some of their additional cronies decided to vote no on the procedural vote. And that's what's interesting about this, is this was just on the cloture vote to end and go towards a vote on the Green New Deal. So they didn't even get to the point where they could vote on the Green New Deal because of the way that uh, the the Democrats uh, handled this. So I think that shows that they're probably not all that serious about this. And when you sit back and you look at the Green New Deal and see how vague it is and how ridiculously constructed it is, uh, you can see very quickly that uh, that's not something that they they should be proud of, and that's probably why they decided to uh, uh, kind of move back from this and uh, and distance themselves by voting no. Well, there's certainly a lot in there when it comes to livestock production, the tax really uh, of the way uh, our production system is right now. So uh, I know you were relieved that that didn't go through, but that doesn't mean that fight is over, does it? Oh, that fight is far from over. The Green New Deal is going to be the theme of congressional hearings on both the House and Senate side probably for the next two years. And as long as the Democrats hold one or both of the houses of Congress in the coming years, uh, it will continue to be a, a focus. So it's not going away. So it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we're telling the story of what agriculture is doing, and specifically for us, the cattle business is doing to, uh, to, to be better, to be good stewards of the resources. And that's what's lost upon the proponents of the Green New Deal. They don't understand what agriculture has done all along without being told to by the EPA or by Congress. Uh, we're a great example. You know, EPA says that we are only 2% of the greenhouse gas emissions in this country. You know, we are making the same amount of beef today that we did in 1977 with a third fewer cattle. You know, our efficiencies, the things that we are doing, uh, continue to, uh, to to reflect well upon the industry, and we're only going to get better uh, because every day we are finding new science, new technologies that we can incorporate to make sure these animals are as efficient as possible and that we can produce as much high-quality beef as possible without having a major impact on the environment. And it's also lost on people like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that without a strong, healthy environment. We don't have an industry. And uh, we're trying to make sure that she, along with others, are aware that agriculture, especially the cattle business, is part of the solution. We're not part of the problem, Mike. We're talking with Colin Woodall, Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Gathering for USMCA, or are there bigger roadblocks popping up? Uh, there's quite of uh, quite a, quite a few roadblocks that are popping up here, and that is really basically the Democrats not wanting to give the president a victory. And now the president has made it clear that this is a priority. Uh, he is out rallying uh, his troops, whether it's those of us in the industry that support USMCA or the Republicans on Capitol Hill to get out and start pushing it. And that's exactly what we're doing. NCBA is hosting our annual legislative conference next week, and that is going to be the primary theme of our meeting, is that we have to get the USMCA passed, ratified, and implemented. Uh, Again, because this was such a big deal for the president to renegotiate NAFTA, uh, you can imagine that the Democrats don't see a whole lot of um, uh, good in, in letting him have that victory, especially since we're now in a presidential election cycle and everybody's focused on 2020. So it's not impossible because we do have many Democrats on the House and Senate side who understand how important USMCA, but it is going to be a significant lift for us to actually get this thing done. The president's made it clear he likes tariffs, 
but it would seem that lifting steel and aluminum tariffs on Mexico and Canada uh, would be the first step that's going to have to be taken to get this through. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of additional conversations on that, but as I look at this, I think it as an insurance policy to make sure that everybody stays at the table. Uh, I think that he's afraid that if he uh, lifts those now that uh, it takes some of the pressure off of the Mexican and Canadian governments uh, in their effort to also try to ratify the USMCA. So uh, there's there's more to come on that discussion, Mike, uh, but right now our, our focus is making sure that uh, Democrats and Republicans alike here in our Congress understand why we need to get USMCA ratified, because a big concern would be if the president actually turns around and decides to pull us out of NAFTA. You know, if he decides to make the decision to pull us out of NAFTA without USMCA being ratified, that's going to leave us in a lurch. And when you look at our industry, where Canada and Mexico are traditionally two of the top five export markets for our product, that could be a huge impact to us. We calculate our access to Canada Mexico being worth about $70 a head. That's $70 that we can't afford to lose right now. Yeah, there's a lot on the line here, that's for sure. Uh, some developments with Europe, None of, uh, not too many of them really positive when it comes to increased trade, especially when it comes to agriculture. There have been some things happening with beef. Uh, what's the latest with the EU? So two things on the EU. One is the effort to try to make sure there is a U.S.-only quota for high-quality beef going into the EU, and this goes back 20-plus years. It has to do with the WTO cases that we have uh, taken against uh, the EU in regards to their ban on hormones. Uh, There was a memorandum of understanding put in place a decade ago to try to uh, alleviate some of that issue, and it was meant for the United States to have access into the EU. But unfortunately, countries like Brazil and Australia came in and started chipping away at that uh, at that quota and taking our market share away from us, and that just didn't settle well. So we asked the Obama administration, actually, is when it started, and now it's spilled over into the Trump administration, to fight that. Uh, those talks are ongoing. We hope that they get done quickly, uh, but we need to make sure that we have a U.S.-only access quota for high-quality beef going into the EU. And the second thing is the talks... And, of course, the EU does not want to allow agriculture to be a part of it. Uh, We have made it very clear to the president that without agriculture, there's no way we would support an agreement. The president agrees, and he and his entire administration have been very clear in the EU that if there's not agriculture, we won't have an EU agreement. And as long as we can keep the administration in that position, it allows us the opportunity to continue to push on them for their non-science-based trade barriers like this hormone ban. Wow, lots going on. You'll have a busy conference next week in Washington, D.C. Colin, thank you for being with us and giving us an update. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Colin Woodall, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Well, uh, China's been making some purchases again lately, uh, especially uh, getting some attention, uh, corn purchases. What's going on with uh, China and some other markets around the world that are so critical to moving U.S. grain. We're going to talk with Tom Slate, President and CEO of the U.S. Grains Council. What is he hearing from our customers around the world? That's coming up next. Stay with us here on AOA Adams on Agriculture.
want to make the most of your wheat crop's yield potential. BASF has a full portfolio of fungicides to help, starting with Preaxor brand fungicide. It gives you early to mid-season disease control, stress protection, and improved growth efficiency, which you need for higher yields. Now combine that with Nexacorzemium brand fungicide for early to mid-season applications, and you've got disease control that helps deliver healthier, greener leaves longer. And more green means more photosynthesis, more grain mass, and potential yield. Now add in Caramba brand fungicide, and you're getting best-in-class head scab suppression plus control of late-season foliar diseases. That gives you a yield advantage over infected weed acres that are left untreated. The fact is with Preaxor fungicide, Nexacor fungicide, and Caramba fungicide all together in one portfolio, you're covered all the way through harvest. That's a winning combination. For more, ask your BASF representative. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. We're joined now by Tom Slate, President and CEO of the U.S. Grains Council. As we take a look around the world at uh, uh, key markets for U.S. grains. Tom, thanks for joining us. Uh, let's start with China. Uh, some corn news lately. Uh, what's the latest there? Yeah, hi, Mike. Yeah, we uh, we had a... Chinese corn purchase last week confirmed uh, after literally weeks of chasing around rumors uh, to the fact uh, they they bought 300,000 tons and you know brought their total up to about 18 million bushels uh, for this marketing year, which um, good good news to see because we've been shut out of that market for a while now. What's behind that? Is, you know, a lot of speculation because they think uh, there could be a, you know reduced production in the U.S. this year because of flooding or it's, it has something to do with the trade talks? What are you hearing? Well, I think it's sort of all of the above. It has, I think it has a lot to do with the trade talks. I think that um, you know, it was a purchase by a state-owned uh, trading enterprise, uh, so that was uh, what we thought where we'd see some U.S. corn moving in there because it might be going into reserves right away. Uh, you know, one of the things we'd be worried about is sort of, uh, you know, sort of like a, a, a courtesy purchase. You know, let, let's purchase some corn to, to buy some goodwill. I don't think it's too much of that, but that's always a part of the factor here. But, I, again, I think the bottom line on all of this is China is still a very significant importer of feed grain on the world marketplace, and they, they need the feed grain. So this, you know, U.S. corn was, uh, you know, priced well, uh, depending whether or not you put the tariffs on. You have to do the math. But, um Right now, the most expensive corn in China is domestically produced corn, so uh, I think that uh, we're we were in the market, and uh, they decided to buy. Not much, but uh, hopefully it's a sign of things to come. What do your people in China tell you about the Chinese reaction to these trade talks and, and how they feel about them? I, I think that, the, you know, sort of the interesting part is uh, what they say is that there's a very strong uh, segment of Chinese economy and politics that is, you know, reform-minded, and a lot of these talks, you know, in terms of reforming some of the transparency issues with Chinese trade, making them more, you know, uh, in line with international trading standards, these are things that uh, there's a lot of folks within China that wanted to see. So, in other words, the things that we're asking for are things that many in China are asking for. So, now, I think that that's sort of the good part of all this. I think the other part is that, you know, China continues uh, to want to have a better relationship with the United States, but they're not going to um, wait forever for this to happen. 
you saw that uh, just happening here uh, yesterday with uh, with Italy. So I think that uh, you know our folks are are saying you know you know there's a lot of good uh, will behind these talks, uh, and a lot of lot of folks want to see uh, you know U.S. return as a supplier of agricultural products to that country. We keep hearing about uh, the the spread of African swine fever, but hard to get an accurate assessment of just. Uh, how big it is, although we're hearing some pretty big numbers of, uh, you know, animals lost there. Uh, are you are you able to get a better uh, idea of that the situation and its uh, potential impact? Yeah, it's really hard to, to pin that thing down. Again, getting uh, good, reliable statistics in China on agricultural production is always a challenge. It always has been. Um, you know, we're seeing anywhere from a 25% drop in, in hog numbers, possibly a little bit higher. Uh but again, they're hard to pin down. Certainly, it's it's big, and certainly it's it is a lot of a lot of Chinese. We're working with a lot of Chinese uh, companies in terms of trying to control the disease, not only in China but in other countries around Asia too. Um, taking a lot of steps, what they can do to control it, uh, control the spread. It's significant, no question about it. It has reduced hog numbers, uh, but you know hog numbers uh, were, were sort of high anyway. So. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's playing through the system now, but I think it's still expanding from what we hear, uh, and uh, it is it is a big problem. We're talking with Tom Slate, president and CEO of the U.S. Grains Council. All right, Tom, uh, kind of take us around to some of the other key markets that you're working on. Uh, uh, any new developments or are you, any breakthroughs close, do you think? Yeah, well, I think the one thing that I think is really interesting is that uh, Japan has uh, asked us uh, – for a lot of information about what's going on, you you were just were talking about the floods. Uh, that's got a lot of concern from uh, some of your loyal buyers uh, around the world. Japan, we've I've heard directly from them what's going on, how is this going to impact farmers and their planning decisions. You know I mean, they rely on U.S. Uh, you know corn production very very heavily, so it's a big concern to them. So we're looking at that and also looking in terms of what's going on with uh, the trade talks with Japan that are starting to heat up. I was just in Peru uh, last week, and I think that um, you know we, things are going well there, both in terms of the, on the ethanol side and on the corn side. There's again strong demand that's that's there, but we've got some trade issues we want to work through. So again, we're we're seeing uh, strong buying. Uh, you know, again, we're very competitive right now in price, but uh, we're looking very closely because the South American crop is getting getting to the point where it's going to start to be a big competitive factor for us on the international marketplace, and so all, all our folks around the world are trying to get their hands on that, uh, get their arms around that, and see what the impact's going to be, because they're starting to see some movement here. Uh, you mentioned Egypt earlier uh, in your news report, and I guess we're seeing some action on corn there as well, so we're always watching places like that. But it's, a, you know, right now a lot of the world wants to see what these numbers, planning numbers, are going to be from the USDA and what the impact will be of the flooding. Yeah, the USDA numbers uh, may not reflect all the all what's happened with the flooding, so it may be a while before we get a real accurate assessment on that. But interesting, uh, you talk about some of these markets. Uh, tell us a little bit more about Peru and what you learned in your visit there. Well, it, you know, it's again, it's a country where we have seen this play out a lot of places around the world, where you have rising per capita consumption of meat. You know, the uh, you know per capita income has been rising there. And so, you know, you see this very aggressive growth in the livestock industries in Peru. Um, and, and a lot of these industries have become to be very reliant on the U.S. as a source of supply. 
and we were talking with a lot of uh, different folks there in the swine and poultry industries. Uh, again, really good growth. They wanted to depend on their access to U.S. Uh, U.S. corn, uh, and so you know, and we're kind of running up again, you know, uh, issues in terms of you know domestic supply and demand. But again, you, you, it's, it, it, we see this all over the world, where you, you have these industries start to grow, these livestock industries start to grow, creates tremendous opportunities uh, for U.S., tremendous opportunities for domestic producers, uh, again, to supply a very aggressively growing livestock sector. And, of course, the ethanol, uh, they are they an are, uh, importer of ethanol, although not a very big one. But um, you know, we've worked some, through some issues there with them, so I think we're on more solid ground in terms of trade policy with them. But it gets sort of this thing you have to you have to stay involved with these marketplaces, and again, um, they become very very uh, interested and reliant on the U.S. as a supplier. Do you expect to see an increase, a significant increase in our ethanol exports this year? Well, uh, yeah, we hope so. We do um, because you know we've continued to have pretty strong growth year to year, uh, and you know we think that. Uh, Sometime in hopefully April, maybe May, uh, we may see our first shipments of U.S. Uh, corn-based ethanol going into Japan. You know, adding that to to the uh, roster. Um, we just had a team in India looking at uh, ethanol um, uh, imports or exports to there. Uh, that's going well. And of course, if these uh, trade talks go well, uh, we could see some ethanol perhaps move into China. That's what we're hopeful for. But you know, we do know that Japanese business is about ready to come, uh, you know, we, April or May. Um, so that's a really uh, kind of a, a hallmark we've been looking for for about, really, you know, since 2014, uh, making progress in a really strong, solid market like that. So, yeah, you know, you know we're, we're, we hope that we're going to continue to see this uh, year-to-year improvement. We're on track. We think we may get up to um, $2 billion, $2 billion gallons, uh, this year. That's our hope. Uh, and we're well on the way. We hear a lot about Vietnam as an emerging market. Uh, how big a market do you see that being for uh, grains this year? Uh, you know, grains. I think we, you know, mainly DDGs right now. Grain, yes. Uh, we're trying to work through some issues there on uh, transportation logistics to get the, our grain in there uh, well. We have a, a, a our, our team in um, in that area right now in Vietnam. I know there's a trade mission coming up going there, a USDA-led trade mission going on on there. Uh, we, we see that as, as a growing market, uh, you know, particularly for DDGs. There, there's going to be our probably our second or first, maybe even our first, not, probably more like second largest market for DDGs. Uh, we do have a couple of problems there we have to work through on, on, uh, on some phytosanitary issues. But, uh, again, the dialogue has been good. We're really bullish on that whole area, Southeast Asia in general, Vietnam leading the pack, uh, Indonesia, uh, looking good, um, you know. Even you know, Philippines, where we just you know had a conference there this week. Again, a lot of interest in what's going on with U.S. supply capabilities, and but the big deal there is, is you know again transportation and handling uh, once that grain gets into country. Yeah, it, there are always those issues, right, that have to be worked out. A lot of times we think, hey, they need something, we've got it, we can sell it, but there are a lot of things in between that have to be worked on. Yeah, you know, particularly going through a. <laughs> A variety of different climates by the time that corn uh, comes from uh, the U.S. getting into Vietnam. So, 
Yep, a lot goes into it. You mentioned the Philippines. Uh, we're going to be talking with the U.S. Meat Export Federation tomorrow about uh, that market for U.S. meat products and a lot of uh, encouraging things happening there as well. Tom, as always, thanks for the update, and we'll talk again, okay? Thank you. Mike, thanks so much. Take care. Tom Slate, president and CEO of the U.S. Grains Council. Sustainability is something we hear a lot about, talk a lot about. We're going to talk with someone uh, next that can give us some uh, tips on how to uh, better measure sustainability on the farm and uh, just what does it really mean, what's the value of that sustainability, uh, what are customers wanting. We'll talk about that next. Stay with us here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Throughout soybean farming regions, growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide from BASF. They know it's the most flexible and advanced solution of its kind for tough weed control, especially resistant weeds. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee. And this year, you can tap into our expanded season-long Grow Smart Rewards program. Get cash back for making the best agronomic game plan with Ingenia Herbicide and BASF's leading portfolio of soybean solutions. Want stronger performance and profits together with peace of mind? Go to IngeniaHerbicide.com to learn more. Grow Smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. information farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams we talk so much about sustainability on the farm but what can we measure are we measuring the right things even and what should we be looking at what are say customers uh food companies wanting from agriculture when it comes to sustainability joining us now to talk about all that is john harsh president and COO of Sustainable Environmental Consultants. John, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So when it comes to sustainability on the farm, what can we actually measure? So here's the great news. Uh, Agriculture is doing a great job um, with their record-keeping, conservation practices, and everything they're doing from no-till to cover crops um, that they're actually implementing on the farm. So what's really great about our process that we call eco-practices is we can take that information and we can create a really good, robust story around the good that's going on, not just with uh, science um, and the raw data that we can generate from that, but what's really cool is that we can convert that to measurable metrics to help tell the story for the farmers through the supply chain for food and beverage companies. Are we currently measuring the right things or are there some things we should be measuring or some things we're focusing on that maybe aren't that important where are we with that i think what's really important to to focus on is is the baseline data and information that we can collect Um, again farmers are doing a lot with nutrient management plans they're doing a lot with the technology that they have within their equipment Um, a lot can be utilized and leveraged um, on that piece, and then we'd like to work with farmers uh, to work on continuous improvement. 
uh, leverage those conservation programs through NRCS, EQIP, other cost share programs, depending on the state that we're working in. Um, and then to do the continuous improvement process um, and help leverage those funds to help offset the cost. Yeah, I'm going to say, what's the value of all this data other than to show that you're doing a good job uh, on your farming operation? That's important, but what other value is there to this data? So the value is the relationship uh, between agriculture, uh, food and beverage companies, and how that connects back to the consumer and what the consumer is driving in that process, right? Uh, consumers are demanding this in a lot of areas to know that their food is grown safe um, and where it's grown. And what we do with our platform of eco practices is we help connect that dot to tie all that back together to leverage that opportunity for collaboration um, throughout the supply chain. So can you quantify the value there? I mean, does it uh, is there an economic value to that, that data? Great question. So one of the processes that we go through with our, our modeling is to look at the economic impact of what this means for the farmer by implementing cover crops and other practices, um, what that means for soil health. Uh, we can actually calculate the greenhouse gas uh, benefits reductions, look at soil health, savings, the different modeling tools that we have access to are really robust and really exciting. So it is clear, a signal is coming out of Washington, D.C., that these are issues that uh, they are going to be focusing on. So I would think that would make uh, this data that uh, farmers can gather from their operations even more valuable, more important to them moving forward. Exactly. Yep, that's it. So what are the steps a farmer would need to take? Uh, maybe they're just getting into this or, or looking at this, uh, ways to measure and uh, tell their story about sustainability. Uh, how do they get m more into this? So we have a um, kind of an onboarding process that we can work with um, growers. Um, it's kind of a baseline introductory process that really explains what it is that we do and how we can collaborate, work together, build that trust factor so that everybody understands kind of what the process is and how it flows. And then in a lot of situations, there may be a grower uh, that is working specifically with an end user or a seller that they're selling their product to, and we can help collaborate what those goals and objectives are to help align that with key performance indicators and uh, other factors that need to be factored in. Yeah, let's talk about the food company role in this. I mean, whether they are doing it for uh, for marketing reasons only or if they really have uh, legitimate concerns about environmental issues and things like that, it would seem the pressure that they are going to bring to bear on producers is going to increase uh, probably in the future. Right. So a lot of food companies um, look at this as, you know, they've gone out and they've um, made statements publicly where they've set goals and they've set their key performance indicators in goals related to their uh, sustainability initiatives in their um, reports that they've published. So there's a risk that they have within their supply chain. Um, so that they're looking for ways that they can can reduce that that risk. Um, some call it non-traditional risk in their supply chain to to better account for what's going on through that process. 
it would seem that agriculture has a really good story to tell, and maybe we've not told it well enough when it comes to some of these issues on sustainability. I, I kind of look at it differently. Um, I think agriculture is doing a phenomenal job. Um, we, we're all very passionate about agriculture, and I think that the key way to say this is is agriculture is super busy, um, and they don't have the time during their day to stop and and generate a report like we can to help tell their story. Um, so that that's kind of what we pride ourselves on is, is being able to capture that data and information to collaborate, to tell the story, uh, to take that burden off agriculture. Yeah, that's a good point. What Doing uh, those things on the farm, but also then taking the time to uh, quantify it and put it together and present it. Yeah, that you're, I can see where that uh, they don't have uh, the time for that, uh, so there is a need to, to have assistance in that regard. Well, John, thank you very much. I look forward to talking with you more in the future about this. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. John Harsh, President and COO of Sustainable Environmental Consultants. All right, thanks for joining us today. Coming up tomorrow, more on uh, uh, some of the activities in Washington, D.C. on disaster relief and more on meat exports. Hope you'll join us on AOA. AOA.